glad to have you here to hear the Word of God, and we are thankful that you're here. The Lord is good, is He not? And we're going to go forth and hopefully be encouraged. We had a great time. The other thing I do want to mention, with the men yesterday, we had a great time gathering with the men, stimulating conversation about the sovereignty of God, and then we talked about biblical manhood and the sense of how do we walk in godliness as men. So that was encouraging. And men lingered and just stayed afterwards. I would encourage you to make it to our next uh, men's meeting and as well. Um, my wife and I in the Shannons, we visited a group of some of you in the Pasadena area because we're considering starting a Bible study in the Pasadena area. And that was a good time just meeting with those people. And we are going to move ahead with that. Um, they're a good group of people out there. So God is um, at work and always. And we're thankful for that. Are we not? And God is a good God, isn't he? Indeed. And we're going to learn more about his goodness as we look at this theme, which we've been considering for some weeks now on resting in God's providence. And as you see the title there, resting in God's providence, sovereignty, and you do see a Q&A, and that's why I'm saying there is a, going to be a, a natural break that's going to happen here, uh, because I'm going to finish my lesson from part seven, which won't take the full time, I don't think, but I've said that before. And... Um, then we're going to have a question and answer time. This is a good portion of where we are in this series to stop here to answer questions for you. And also just want to let you know, moving ahead, what you can expect. The question has come up, how many more lessons will there be? And I even said last week I wasn't sure, but I began to think through how to move ahead with this. And today, sovereignty and providence conclude that. Then in a couple of weeks, I'll come back on the 23rd, and there's going to be prophecy in Providence. Why? Because we're thinking about Jesus Christ. And so I'm going to kind of walk you through this idea of Providence and how did God's hand of Providence move in all these circumstances prophetically to bring about um, Jesus Christ coming. And they're very interesting as you, as you think about it. So that's what we're going to do. And then after that, you know, Bill and I are going back and forth. Then it's going to be pain in providence. Pain in providence. God allows us to suffer. He, um, in this world, has fallen. We will suffer and go through difficulty and heartache. So pain in providence, how do we look at it? Two weeks to look at that. And then we're going to end. We have to end on a high note. Uh, and not that that isn't. But there's going to be praise in providence. I mean, we bring it all together. Ultimately, when we look back at these weeks, and it would have been by that time, maybe part 12, I guess, or part 11, we should praise our great God who controls all things. Amen? And aren't you glad that he does? Absolutely. So let's just go um, and dive into our topic uh, this morning. All of us here, you are, you're faced with a stewardship, and a stewardship of your life. That is, how you live your life, others are looking to you, and you set an example. And an example is so that others can be inspired. That is, your brothers and sisters be spurred on in their faith. We are to stimulate one another, right, to love and good what? Good deeds or good works. So others look to us. And even in the context of that statement about 
um, stimulating one another. We see in Hebrews chapter 11, there is a cloud of witnesses, a cloud of witnesses gone before us. And we can look back at them and say, let me learn lessons from these people who have gone before me and they have set a trail for me, if you will. Now we know obviously the ultimate example being the Lord Jesus Christ. This is in part the theme that you see in 1 Peter. And in 1 Peter, we follow in his what? In his steps. We uh, try to emulate him as best we can. This is what Ephesians chapter 5 is telling us now. We can be imitators of God. What a great privilege we have to be an imitator of God. And we think about even this Christmas season, Jesus Christ coming, giving his life as a ransom for many. We have the opportunity to emulate even that behavior. What do I mean by that? To give ourselves, to be a servant. Um, Mark 10 and 45, he did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And so we can set that example. We can forgive other people. The scripture is even clear in that. It tells us that we're to forgive one another just as Christ has forgiven us. Example is important. And there's an example that we need to share to others by how we make decisions in life and how we live our life, which is, do we rest in God? Do we have a trust in God? When people look at us and we say that we believe in a God that is terribly awesome, a God that is great, a God that is almighty, then the question would be when we make that statement with our mouths, can we also make it by the decisions we make and that we rest in his providential hand? So it creates a contradiction, if you will, if we're saying in one sense that yes, we believe in a great God, but yet in our decisions we're fretting all the time and we're worrying all the time. And we have these great doubts that at times can overwhelm us. Now, remember what I said last week that in this series, here we are in part eight, this is not to say to you, you shouldn't experience certain emotions and that you never have any anxiety whatsoever, that you never shed a tear. I would think if you lose a loved one that you're going to shed some tears and, and maybe perhaps if you got some... Um, statement from a doctor that you just weren't hoping for or wanting to hear, you might feel some emotions. It is not to say that, but it's to say that once we rest in God's providential hand, we can, with these truths from God's word, then, if you will, corral those emotions and set them in order. We are emotional creatures, I could imagine, um, you know, even just the hand of God last night, uh, we had our final sort of dinner with at least for a while with our boys. And this morning, that is my older sons, and I dropped them off at LAX at 5 a.m. this morning as they're going off to their tra further training as Marine officers. And, and that was quite a moment. And, and as we were praying together with family there, and my wife, I knew she just started to cry. She's... And I put my hand on her hand, and she was crying, thinking about now, here it is, 22 years they've been with us. And now they're starting their life, and they're moving on. So to talk about God's hand of providence isn't to say, well, I'm not going to turn to join and say, well, honey, you know, I've taught on providence. <laughs> obviously, 
Obviously, God is in the absolute control, and he has ordered their lives this way, therefore put away your tears. <laughs> yeah, that's totally logical, right? <laughs> right, but that's why I'm here today in good health, right? <laughs> because I didn't say that. <laughs> and what I would advise anyone else, don't go that route. Do you understand? Don't go that route. Okay, amen, guys? Amen. Okay. Don't go that route. So, but on a serious note, it also means this. I've visited people in the hospital. I just spoke to someone recently that we would all know. And they're sitting there getting conflicting information about how much more time they have in this world. I've been at the bedside of people. And at times you just listen to them and you hear their heart and you share the word of God with them. And I don't go into, you know, listen to my series on providence. I may if they're, or I may say, listen to this person or to that person. But I hear what they're saying and, and what they're feeling. And, and I can see, and I have the picture, people I can see, I can see the wife's face right now. And they're looking at their husband and wondering, how much longer do I have with him? We know God is in control. We, we trust that. And in those moments, then people will look to us. See, this goes back to this idea of, of stewardship. Then that nurse is looking at them, and that doctor is looking at them, and others and their neighbors are looking at them. How do they handle life? I know these people, and they have study Bibles, and they have classes and workshops. And there's this university that is very intimately connected with them, and a seminary that's in their backyard, if you will. But, but how do these people live life when you're dealt that? See, it's the stewardship of your life, isn't it? You don't have a choice to live your life your way. You're a call to live your life trusting in the living God who controls all things. But then when life happens, what will you do with some of those emotions? Again, I'm not saying that you wouldn't weep. As a matter of fact, if, if I were in someone's bedside, I've wept with people. I'll never forget it. Um, a young man that was headed to seminary, and as he was en route to come to seminary, uh, I, he, this man had put aside his life and says, I'm committed to being trained for the gospel ministry. And he makes the stop to visit with his parents and his kids' grandparents. And then there's an accident that takes place. And on the way to be trained, what happens? One of his children, they lose their life. I'll never forget that call. And because of my role at the seminary, I reached out to them and we talked on the phone. I'll never forget it. And I said to him, I said, Mrs. Like, I, lo I lost one of my nephews. I've never even seen them before. I'd seen a picture of them, and we talked. But because we're brothers in Christ, it was like I lost a nephew. It just as soon had been Sean or Marcus or Moses or Kyle or Taylor, some of my nephews. It was like I, a part of me was gone. And I was saying to myself, how is it? I don't even know this man. I've never spent one moment with his children whatsoever, but my heart is going out to them. 
And I believe in a sovereign God and a providential God, a God that is awesome, a God to be feared, but I feel something. And I would say to you then, if you never feel something in moments like that, something is wrong with you, terribly wrong with you. And don't hide behind some guys that you have a developed theology. No, you don't. That, that theology has not touched you in your humanity. If you can't identify with people, and it's not even, think about it, it's not even biblical. How do you say, well, it's not even biblical? It's not biblical because it says we're to weep with those who do what? Weep. Oh, my word, did he not? So this is about stewardship. So you listen to lessons like this, and as you listen to any lesson, you should be listening, saying, God, what is it that I am supposed to do? What is my response? How do I grow? And this is why sort of in Christian circles today, so many people think about what will it do for me? What about my life? That's not relevant to me. And I'm not sure. I'll skip out on that series. I'll go somewhere else because that's not important for me. That's terribly selfish to say the least. We learn and we grow in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ so that we can be better Christians for other people, don't we? And we can be better people for other individuals. And sometimes there are lessons that we're learning now that we may not use it right now. It may not seem relevant right now, but there may be a point in life where the Lord can use you because you are prepared. So I encourage you to continue to listen. And whatever you hear in this service, listen. And whatever you hear next week to listen to it and ask, Lord, what is my response to the word of God? so that I can be a better individual and a steward of the life entrusted to me. So this series about resting in providence isn't just because, well, I thought I'd like to tackle this theological idea and help us understand something that can be quite lofty and bring it to earth. Well, of course, that's a part of it, but then ultimately it's so that you can be better representatives of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to encourage your souls. And how are we going to do that? Well, even this morning, we're going to look at some passages. A lot of our time will be in Isaiah. And I've mentioned Isaiah maybe the next thing I'd like to teach. And um, you'll probably see why as we go there. And we've been considering in this series uh, really three principles, three aspects of God's providence. We have spent some time already defining it. We can rest as we understand the definition of providence, and we've done that. We can rest as we consider the scope of providence, that it is broad from Genesis to Revelation. We can rest as we contemplate the sovereignty of providence, and this is where we find ourselves now, still dealing with this idea of sovereignty and providence. And you know what we've said before already, that sovereignty um, in this definition that we're using right now is kind of succinctly stated in these three words, it is God's right to do as he pleases, it's God's ability to do as he pleases, and it's God's desire to do as he pleases. God has the right to do, the prerogative of the Lord Jesus Christ, the master of the universe to guide the lives of people accordingly, that will bring him the most glory and even for them the most benefit. It is his ability God is a God of absolute power and wisdom, and he moves in that way to order the things of the world. His desire, 
our God is in the heavens and it tells us he does whatever he pleases. We've learned from even the contrast that we have with God, how we're so different. We're not sovereign beings. God is sovereign. We are limited in our power, but God is omnipotent. We are limited in our reach, but God is omnipresent. And this idea, here's this reality that all things are before the Lord. And I even illustrated that last week by the time when I was away in Mount Hermon, California, and on a trail, and I saw a spider web, and, and even that spider web was a statement of God's great presence, that this great master of the universe realizes that this spider web was spun. Amazing to me. And just think about that reality as I even communicated last week. If you were to take, there are different types of webs um, that can be spun by obviously different types of spiders, but uh, the basic idea, if you were to take a spider web because, and to go around just the circumference of the earth, imagine that, that it would still only weigh like, I um, think it was 18 ounces. That's an amazing thing. Think about that. It's so thin, but God realizes that. He knows that. And how much more than if he realizes that does he know your life? There's something that's clear in Scripture, though, about God's omnipresence. Look with me. We're going to start in Deuteronomy. Look with me at Deuteronomy chapter 2. This is clearly stated in God's Word that He is a God that has an unlimited reach. He is omnipresent. That is, all things are before the Lord. He was present in the wilderness. For it says, the Lord, your God, has blessed you and all that you have done. He has known your wanderings through the great wilderness. These 40 years, the Lord, your God, has been, what does it say? With you, and you have a lack, not a thing. So we see presence. Now we know there was a physical manifestation of the presence in the wanderings because it was at night, there was a fire, and during the day, there was a cloud. So there's physical presence, but God was not physically in the fire or physically in the cloud. It was a way to manifest his care and concern for them that they could see, that if you will, they could touch that was visible to them. But nonetheless, God was present with them. And this is a great theme. If you want to just do a great study, particularly go through the Old Testament and look at this idea, and he was with them, and he was with him. Think about even Joseph, and it says of Joseph, and the Lord was with him, and the Lord was with him. But we have to remember what Joseph, the Lord was with him. One might say, well, of course the Lord was with him when he was exalted before Pharaoh. No, the Lord was with him when he was where? In prison. The Lord was with him. And the Lord is with us. Whatever place we find ourselves in life, whether it be a valley or a mountaintop, the Lord is with us because he is everywhere present. It is not only he was present in the wilderness, it's declared from heaven. Declared from heaven, Psalm 33 and 13. And what does it say? The Lord looks from heaven, he sees all the sons of men. So from this lofty position, the Lord is looking out on mankind. And he looks out simply because he has full knowledge of mankind. And there's language that we use to help us understand God and how he interacts with us. Um, so when it says he sees, it's not in the sense that he is visibly, visibly looking. It's simply that he has knowledge of, and because he has an absolute knowledge, all things are before him. And so he sees all things. 
It is declared by the psalmist as well. Psalm 139 and 7. Where can I go from your what? Spirit. And where can I flee from your presence? But that should be a comfort to us that is communicating that wherever we find ourselves in life, God is present there with us. But it is also something that should be a point of, and I'll say conviction perhaps, in that God is everywhere present. In our men's discussion for a moment, we were talking about the issue of purity and and fearing the Lord and and accountability. And one can be accountable, but you can still lie to your accountability partner. It's happened all the time. I mean, as a pastor, the people that I've talked to over the years, and I asked them, did you go there? Did you do that? Did you say that? Have you been to that website again? Oh, no, no, never, never. Are you sure? Are you sure? Oh, absolutely not. And then it comes out later on that they were and that they did and that they went and that they saw and that they heard. But there's someone that always knows, amen? And we discuss how that needs to be your first motivation. Because people can deceive, but he sees all things. Before I go to this next point concerning God's, and as we're emphasizing God's limited or unlimited sovereignty, I want us to understand two important aspects of, of the Savior's person. And, and I think if we can understand them, they have great import, not only for this lesson, but also for your life. What are these two aspects I want us to understand? Transcendence and eminence. Transcendence and eminence. First, transcendence. What is Transcendence. Transcendence is is this eternal truth that God, because of his eternally perfect and holy nature, God stands above his creation. And because he stands above his creation, he is free of any limitations in fulfilling what he so desires. God is free from the laws of the material universe. He stands above them. God is free from anything that might thwart his plans because he has unlimited power. He has unlimited wisdom. His presence is everywhere. God is free from the stain of sin, obviously, because he has a perfectly holy character. And therefore, our God is worthy of what? Praise and honor and adoration. So we should think that God is a transcendent God. This speaks to the loftiness of God, the highness of God. This sense when we think about someone being transcendent, transcendent, they are above us. He is free, absolutely. He stands above the universe that he has created. But let's look at transcendence in Isaiah. And I said we were going to spend some time there. Transcendence in Isaiah. So Isaiah, let's begin in Isaiah chapter 6. And you see the verses there that we're going to consider as we move through this idea. Isaiah 6, what is the picture that we see here? In the year of King Uzziah's death, the prophet sees the Lord, and where is he? When does he see the Lord sitting on a throne? And how is that throne described? Lofty and exalted with the train of his robe filling the temple, and they're crying out to the Lord. These creatures cried, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, 
the whole earth is full of his glory. This is a picture of God's transcendence, his, his otherness, his loftiness, his uniqueness. Here, consider, go with me to Isaiah 52. Isaiah 52, another picture of the transcendence of God. And I'm going to pull this together for you and let you know why it is important for you to appreciate this. Isaiah 52 and 13, I love it. Behold, my servant shall prosper. He shall be high and what? Lifted up and greatly exalted. And we recognize that. And even the picture that we see in Isaiah 6 is a testimony to that. And the picture that we would see in Revelation chapter 4 and Revelation chapter 5 is a picture of one who is high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Transcendence. Look at Isaiah 55. Isaiah 55. Familiar verses. Verse 8, for my thoughts are not your what? Nor my ways are your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the uh, what? earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. That is a great comfort, isn't it? Aren't you glad that God is distinct? That he is other than us? That he thinks other than us? We can rest in this reality of the loftiness of God. Look with me at Isaiah 57. Isaiah 57, the first part of verse 15. And what does it tell us there? Isaiah 57, it says, For thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy. And where does he dwell? I dwell in a high and holy place. So these images throughout. The prophet sees him on this throne. We, can, we are reminded of a Savior who will in fact be high and exalted, greatly prospering. We're reminded that his thoughts are different than our thoughts. And here is another image, a declaration by God himself of his loftiness. But we should understand something for a moment. Um, in... Isaiah 57, sort of the context, at least some of the context of this. In chapters 1 to 39, we see that there is no righteousness in the earth, therefore judgment is going to come. And then in chapters 40 to 55, we understand that, yes, despite the, the wretchedness of the world and even of his people who have failed, God will graciously provide. And how does he graciously provide? Well, he graciously provides because of the servant who would give his life as a ransom for many. And then in 56 to 66, here is the proof of his resolution to provide. Yes, I promised it, but it will take place. Trust me. The earth will be full of my glory. I will bring my people back. My name will be proclaimed throughout all of the world. So you've fallen short. Judgment is coming. So how can God have a relationship to man if they have fallen short? Grace must be provided. And how is grace provided? By a servant who would die. And because a servant has died, God will reconcile with his covenant people 
and he will make the earth even new again. There's more to be said, but perhaps when we go through, uh, I think we may go through Isaiah, we can go there. The question is this, okay, transcendence, great. Uh, what's the relevance for life, for my life right now? And, and I think that is a question to ask when we, we hear preaching. You should be asking, okay, God, what is it? What are you speaking to me? How, how does this affect my life? If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, then a transcendent God is important for you because nothing can disrupt God's plan for your life. Now, sometimes we hear language like that today, and it's amazing how because of the context of the church today, there's certain things that you have to qualify. And you sort of have to qualify that today, don't you? Because you hear so much language that talks about God's plan for your what? your life, and how you can have your best life now, and it's all about your life. And there used to be a day you didn't have to say that. People just knew what you meant. You could say, God has a plan for your life, and, and people thought, that's right. What is it the Lord wants me to do? How can I serve him and give for him? How can I sacrifice? Well, today you say, God has a plan for your life, and what do people think? I'll stop for a moment. What do they think nowadays? Oh, money. Yeah, okay, God, I'm going to get that promotion. It's going to happen for me. I'm going to be recognized finally. It's going to take place because of Jesus Christ and what he's done for me now. The wealth of the wicked are now going to come my way. This is what we hear today. And now you have to qualify things because we're so immature in our faith in the church today. But God does have a plan for your life. And you're to be a steward of that plan. So you think about transcendence, I realize that this God is lofty and high and nothing can alter that plan for my life. All I need to do is walk closely, intimately with the Lord. But here's the thing about it. In that plan, we also have to recognize that genuine Christianity says, as James would say, there will be various trials in life as well. And that's what so many people leave out. They'll say, yes, there's a plan for your life, and it's a great plan, but they leave out various trials that we consider to be joy because they bring about character. Here's that. The next word is eminence. And what is eminence? Eminence is this sense of God's redemptive, and we'll say um, condescension of God, that he seeks the good of men, and he seeks his own glory. And he is engaging in the affairs of, of mankind. He is not simply transcendent. He is also an imminent God. And even um, we might, the greatest example of it being Emmanuel, God what? What does it tell us? God with us. We see imminence in Isaiah as well. And we're going to go back to some of those passages because I want you to see transcendence and imminence together. Go back with me to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah 6. So God engaged in the everyday affairs of mankind. Yes, he is a lofty God, but nonetheless, he is engaged with his people, his creation. Isaiah 6. And keep flipping past it there. So Isaiah 6, but if we were to begin in verse 6, because Isaiah has communicated in verse 5, because he's seen this transcendent and holy and distinct and lofty God, he says what? What we should all say, woe is me for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips. 
and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. But here is eminence. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, and he had taken from the altar with the tongues, and he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. He is engaged. We see redemption taking place. And then verse 8, Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go and tell this people. So here is eminence. A transcendent God says, Yes, but I want a message to go to my people, and I'm going to choose individuals to bring that message. We are a part of God's chosen people to do that. This is why, again, stewardship. If we were to go to Isaiah 52, 14, all the way to 53 and 12, and obviously we see eminence there because what do we see happening? Beginning with verse 14, it talks about Jesus Christ being marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. And then it goes throughout the rest of Isaiah 53, and we know the story. It is an account of Jesus Christ and his sufferings that is eminence, that he is very much engaged in the affairs of man. Look what be Isaiah 55. Isaiah 55. What does it communicate there? Well, in verse 10, his well, we saw eight and nine, his thoughts, his ways are very distinct in ours because he is a lofty and great God. Verse 10, for as the snow and the rain come down from heaven and do not return from watering the earth, so is his word, verse 11, so will my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire. So this is an expression of eminence because what is happening here? God is engaged. He is sending forth his word, and he sends it even as we saw in Isaiah 6. He's sending it through a man. He's sending it through each one of you. When you became a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you were commissioned, and you began a life of a stewardship. You became an ambassador for the Lord Jesus Christ. What a privilege, amen? That now you could be his ambassadors. And sometimes, and unfortunately so, we think about an ambassador. Well, that's something that uh, I would do, or that's something that Bill would do, because we have this particular calling to the minister. It's something that the men on this campus do who are being trained in the ministry because they've been called to the ministry. No. They may do it vocationally, but each one of you, if you know the Lord Jesus Christ, you have a calling to the ministry, do you not? And that calling is to go and be God's representative wherever he have you. In the doctor's office, at the DMV. <laughs> yeah, really. <laughs> I know what you're thinking. You, amen for that, right? <laughs> wherever it may be. God has called you to be there. So that's why it's important we learn all of these things. Because you never know what questions are going to come your way. You never know what's going to happen in life. And people are looking to you as an ambassador of the Lord Jesus Christ. But turn with me to Isaiah 57. Let's go back there. I said we were going to go back. We see eminence. We see transcendence. And we see eminence. What we saw in Isaiah 57, God makes his own declaration 
He is a God that is high and lifted up and greatly exalted. And where does he dwell? In this high and lofty place. He is the Holy One. And then we notice, if you will, in this, we're going to call this the second part of verse 15. Beautiful contrast here. So he ends by saying what? In 15, I dwell, I'm sorry, in the middle of 15, I dwell in a high and holy place. But notice what he says, and also, here is eminence, with the contrite and lowly of spirit, but with purpose as well, in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Transcendence, God is lofty and high, eminence, he is right there. But notice the qualifiers, though. This is important as well. Contrite, those that are crushed. We see it in Isaiah 53, verse 3 and verse 5. It it talks about Jesus Christ. He was crushed for our iniquities. Verse 5, it says, it was pleasing that the Father would crush him. So what sort of people does he look to? Those that are humble and lowly and contrite. Transcendence and eminence is a great deal of import for your life because you think about this God that is great and lofty, but he's also a God that is with me and engaged with me and cares for me and knows my every need. See, this is not a God of deism that is simply created and he is backed away from his creation and he's not intimately engaged with it. He is very intimately engaged with it. And to the nth degree that it would give his only begotten son as a ransom for you. It doesn't become more intimate than that, does it? Here's another consideration. We are limited in knowledge. God is our mission. We are limited. He is our mission. Sometimes maybe one of the more difficult areas of life has to do with people questioning or wondering whether or not God knows. Does he know what I'm facing? Does he know my difficulty? Does he know my hardship? Does he know my circumstances? And all of us that may have asked that question at some point in time, I know if we were just to stop and, and we were to engage ourselves theologically, we could answer that question, couldn't we? We know that he knows but we don't feel that he knows. And this is where our theology then has to arrest our thinking in that moment. And we have to be in one sense like even the psalmist. Consider Psalm 42 and 43. What is the refrain that you see throughout both? Um, Why are you downcast, O my soul? Self-counseling. What did he say? Someone say it aloud. Put your hope in God, for I shall yet again praise him. And again, why are you downcast? Hope in God. Why are you downcast? Hope in God. Why are you downcast? Hope in God. And there are moments in our life when we have to do that. We, we find ourselves on some stage in life and we have to be like the psalmist and there has to be self-counseling, if you will, to remind ourselves of these truths. Let me give you just briefly some verses. Um, it was present in the battlefield. God is an all-knowing God. 2 Kings 19.27. The cross-reference to that would be Isaiah, Isaiah 37, which is the parallel account, Isaiah 37, like 21 to 29. And the picture is, of course, Shennacherib 
um, the great leader of Assyria. His troops have come upon Jerusalem, sieging the city. Uh, people are dying in the midst of it. It talks about women not even having strength to give birth to their children. Um, the Rabshakeh comes for sort of Shennacherib's representative, and he is chiding them and saying, no one can stand against our, our great king. And it says, some of you are going to eat your own dung for food. You're going to drink your own urine for water is what he's saying to them. Why not just come out and my master will allow you to go free? Then what happens? Um, Hezekiah goes to the prophet Isaiah, the pro or sends for Isaiah to give a word. Isaiah brings back a word from God. And what is God's word? God says uh, in this text, he says, he says essentially to Shennacherib, I have, I know you're raging about me. I know what you have said. I I've seen your forces come forth is essentially what he's saying. And what God is communicating in an intimate way, I'm fully aware of the circumstances. And we know how the story ends, don't we? He sends an angel of the Lord, and 185,000 are destroyed. It was present even in the battlefield. He is fully aware. And that was the problem because um, Hezekiah is struggling and says, God, do you not hear? Do you not know what's going on? Incline your ear to us. Hear us. Listen to us. See what is happening to your people. He thought, God, you don't know. And sometimes we can be like, Hezekiah in those moments. Do you know? It's declared by God. Isaiah, I'm sorry, not Isaiah, Job 37, 16. It says, do you know about the layers of thick clouds, the wonders of one perfect in knowledge? Perfect in knowledge. And if you read through, I um, keep saying Isaiah, Job 37, you'll see what is Job engaging him with or God engaging him with, do you have any awareness of all the things that I do, Job? You don't. I'm a God perfect in knowledge. Let me close this way in this idea of sovereignty. Go. There's a quote from John Flavel um, who wrote a work um, entitled The Mystery of Providence. And he says this, it is the great support and solace of the saints in all the distresses that befall them here that there is a wise spirit sitting in all the wheels of motion and governing the most eccentric creatures and their most pernicious designs to blessed and happy issues. And indeed, it were not worthwhile to live in a world devoid of God and providence. What is he saying? There's this God that is in heaven. Uh, he is ordering all things. He brings about a blessed and happy end to their life. And he says, if I were to look at life, life is not worth living if I can't live with that sort of God that is in control. I want a transcendent God that is, can set things in motion, but I also want to have a God that is imminent. He is engaged in even the most pernicious designs of what is happening in my life and those around me. So we have a choice to make. Here's a final thought, and I'll open it up to some questions. The final thought is simply this. Which throne will you choose? We've been talking a lot about thrones. God is on his throne. God is high and lifty, lofty, that is. 
will we trust a God who is on his throne? Or in one sense, what we do is create our own. God is a sovereign God, and we can trust him. Amen? Any questions about this? Time to take some questions that you may have. It's not just this lesson, but anything that we've been talking about or anything that may have to do with the idea of providence or sovereignty. They're going to have some mics. Okay, you got a question right here. Excellent. Just repeat it for us so we can all hear. Excellent. Okay. um, God tested Hezekiah not that to know what was in his heart that he didn't know because he's sovereign. He wanted Hezekiah to know, right? Well, God has tested the entire people because the entire city is, is under siege at that point. And he is testing the people so they would come to a point where they have to ultimately realize that their trust is in him. Just turn back with me, if we can, to Isaiah 37. Uh, another great study, that if you want to ever do it, um, it would take you a while to do it, but it would be a great comfort. If you just looked up, do not be afraid or do not fear. Just do not be afraid, do not fear. We think about the commands in the Bible. Uh, the most repeated command is, in fact, that. Do not fear. What does it say here? Verse 6, Isaiah 37 which is, like we said before, the parallel to the Second Kings account. Isaiah said to them, Thus you shall say to your master, Thus says the Lord, Do not be afraid because of the words that you have heard, which, which the servants of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. So this is the word that God is giving to them. Don't fear. He's blasphemed me. He said that our God, or I'm not truly a God who can deliver you. Don't believe that. For one moment. And then what he's, notice what it says in verse 10. Thus you shall say to Hezekiah the king of Judah, do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you. Now who's talking now? The Rapshakar, the representative of Assyria is talking. And what does he say? Do not, what? Let your God in whom you trust deceive you. Isn't that, the, isn't that arrogant? It, but isn't that what the world does? Don't let God or your trust deceive you. Life is not going to turn out that way. Don't, don't give your full heart to him. This is how the enemy operates. It's a matter of trust. And this is why this series is resting in the providence of God or trusting in the providence of God. And notice, if you will, why should we trust the Lord? Because ultimately, God wants to glorify himself. I've said it a hundred times in this series. You'll hear it a hundred times through any biblical preaching. Notice what he says in verse 28 of chapter 37. And this is the reference we alluded to earlier. But I know you're sitting down. This is God speaking to um, the king, Shennacherib, and you're going out and you're coming in. You're raging against me because of your raging against me and because of your arrogance, and it was in fact arrogant, wasn't it, has come up to my ears Therefore, I will put my hook in your nose and my bridle in your lips. Notice the use, right? Me, me, my, my, my. Yeah, you attack my city and my people, you attack me. I will defend my name. 
Notice what he says in verse 35. For I will defend this city to save it for what? My own sake and my servant David's sake. I made a covenant with David. I'm going to protect my people and I'm going to protect this city. My honor is at stake because if the city falls before I said it was going to fall, eventually it would fall. And it's interesting, and maybe when we go to Isaiah, we'll look at it, because the rapture had made a statement that says, wait a minute, God said that he was going to send us against the city. Well, that's true, but not now. Because the city would fall. But God is saying, now I'm going to defend it. So God does it to glorify himself. He tests us all, right? The testing of our faith and what does the testing of our faith do? What does it produce in us? That's right. Ultimately, character in us. So that means that unless we are tested, we won't have the character that God has intended. And that's a blessing. It may not seem like a blessing. It doesn't feel like it all the time, does it? But nonetheless, it's necessary. Good question. Another question someone may have. I see your hand over here. If we're going to talk about this later, you don't really have to answer it, but the relationship of providence and evil? Well, we will, because when we talk about pain and providence, we'll absolutely unfold it. And they're just initially you say, well, this sense of evil, um, God is allowing evil in this world ultimately so his grace and mercy can be displayed. Um, you explode the thought that's behind a Romans 8.28, God is working everything together for good to those who love him. It's the thought of Joseph um, in, in Egypt. Uh, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for what? For good. So our great God is the only one that can take evil purposes of men and use them for his glory and then for our benefit. And there are many things that he does, reasons he does it. The conformance to Christ, he used it to spread the church. Persecution came upon the church, and what happened? The church did what? It spread, it dispersed. God uses it to obviously um, to purify the church itself. God uses it so that man's wretchedness can be demonstrated. I mean, we see it all the time. I just saw an article that I kind of, whatever, I tweeted out or something about some corrupt cops in St. Louis. Just horrible story. And that essentially, them, and this is what I don't understand, and maybe in some measure I do understand it, you know, about sin, because people do dumb things when they sin often, don't they? Or we do at times, do we not? Because you say to yourself, really, you're going to tweet that out? Have you not you seen story after story where someone finds your tweet that you thought you erased or your Facebook post that you thought you erased? So a police officer, and I don't even like using the word because they've corrupted the office so much, he tweets out when the issues were happening, you know, in St. Louis, also in Ferguson, demonstrators are coming out. He says, I st he says, I still love beating people. Oh, and you, you my, it's on my little Facebook. And yeah, and he is saying this to another officer and essentially almost to say, let's get ready to go beat up some people tonight with these protesters. And they did. But guess what? The person they beat up was an undercover cop. <laughs> oh, my. Now, he's hospitalized. He brutalized him brutalize them. So it's for them. Now indicted, grand jury, not sure what sort of um, issues they're going to face. 
So you say, why did God allow that? Well, multiple reasons that we can never grasp, but a part of it is you, you, you're in need of a Savior. You need a Savior. Because even those that are pledged to protect you won't always do what? Protect you. Now, and I, my message was sort of like bad cops stain the honorable office of, you know, the honorable office. That's all I said. Because I absolutely support that. I mean, you obviously, a little bit, you know, for me, I would support officers in the military by all means. But just like I support the pastor, but I know there are crooked preachers out there as well. Right? I, absolutely. It's been corrupted. So the next time you hear about some preacher who now has run off with some floozy, right? Well, we don't use a. Some of you are like. Some of you are like, what is a. What is like a floozy? So I dated myself, right? There's a new app. <laughs> I dated myself totally. But you get it. You know exactly what I'm talking about. And you say, oh my, what, then what people do, do they not? They say, look, that's why I don't believe in Christianity. That's why the pastor is so corrupt. Well, they're corrupt. Well, help me make that connection, because right now what I'm saying is that, oh, right, exactly, you have to look to Jesus Christ. But even in the office of pastoring, that the vast majority of men are fighting the good fight. That's the thing about it. They're fighting the good fight. That's the reality. Now, sometimes when our more recognized personalities fall, it draws more attention to it. We get that but we don't give up on the pastorate because of these men happening. So I don't give up on the police force or the military because of that. But it, it causes us to say mankind is insufficient. He is inept at trying to save himself and to protect himself. I need a covering that is beyond them. And ultimately it has to be the Lord Jesus Christ and trust in him. Okay, great. Two good questions there. I know they're more percolating, but we'll do it another time. All right? Um, Father, thank you for the time you give us, your grace, mercy, and goodness. And would ask that you bless our goings from here in Christ's name. Amen.